Explore Us. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. Let's travel back to ancient Rome. It's 47 or 46 BCE, and we've stepped into a private chamber where a woman is pulling down her saffron-colored veil. Today, she's getting married, but she's no blushing virgin. In fact, this is her third marriage, and she's as shrewd, seasoned, and ambitious as they come. When she marries a man, she becomes his ultimate champion. And lucky for him, her fiancé is about to find out just what it means to be married to Rome's number one lady gangster. Fulvia is a mighty force of nature. She's also one of the scariest and least appreciated badasses that ancient Rome is ever going to see. Grab your best walking sandals, your sharpest hairpins, and a flint, because we're about to light this place all the way up. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My Pirate Queens, Emily H., Jessica B., Kayla, Wendy, Jackie S., Mikkel, Chloe, Sarah S., Becky, Morgan, Stephanie, Cara, Lauren O., Marie Claire, Samantha, Mira, Lydia, Sean, and Aaron. And my Lady Presidents, Caitlin, Louisa, Amy, Brendan, Paul, Elizabeth G, Nancy, Eve, Kat, Courtney H, Casey, Debbie, Pamela, Sasha, Cassie, Townsend, Ellie, Jessica S, Meg, Manda, Audrey, Lauren K, Karen R, Amanda, Dana, Lori, Larissa, Belinda, Nicole, Claire, Elizabeth M, Kelly F, Mary, Diana, Kelly, Jeanette, Courtney, Kim, Elspeth, Melissa, Alexis, Iris, Krista, Veronica, Crystal, Catherine, Amanda, Emily C, the other Sarah S, Nkiru, and Maggie, and to the Imperators and Augustas who give me more than I ask for, Jackie C, Lizzie, Karen C, Alexis, and Avery. Becoming a patron really helps me keep the show going, and it gives you access to exclusive bonus episodes, sneak peeks, polls, Q&As, interviews, and more. To find out all about it, just go to my website. Just a reminder that if you haven't yet listened to our other three-parter called When in Rome or the previous two episodes in the Domina series, I'd go back and do that before listening to this one. It will give you more context about the events and the characters we're going to be meeting and some background on what it means to be a woman in Rome. Also, a little content warning. Fulvia led a racy life, so this episode might not be one to blast in front of your five-year-old or your super uptight mother-in-law. Just so you know. Let's back up and begin at the beginning. Fulvia Flacca Bambula is born somewhere around 83 BCE, probably, maybe? But we really don't know, which is probably just as Fulvia would want it. She's the daughter of a guy named Marcus Fulvius Bambalio. It's important to note that Fulvia's father is a plebeian. Remember that in Rome, we have two major citizen classes, the patricians, or the wealthy elite, and the plebs. Now, plebs can be wealthy, and they can be quite influential, but they're essentially considered commoners by those who live up on Rome's finest hills. Fulvius' dad is quite a high-class pleb, but he's still a pleb. A man, you could say, of the people. Here's Dr. Rad from the podcast The Partial Historians, who along with her co-host Dr. G is back to help tell Fulvia's story. So she she actually doesn't come from like an amazing background. Her father, I, I mean, she's obviously part of the elite, but he wasn't, it's not like Cornelia where her father was, you know, this amazing military hero that people still study their battle strategies or anything like that. He was fairly, fairly modest background. But she ends up becoming connected to some pretty notorious men in her lifetime. And it, it is largely through this that she's able to get a bit of a public profile and wield power. She seems to have been very interested in promoting whoever she happened to be married to at the time. 
and, and to have her own ideas that she really brought to the table. Her family has seen some ancestors rise to take places in the Senate, but if anything, they're on the political decline. Her grandpa was known as feeble-minded. He apparently was fond of going to stand in the forum and throw coins at people. Her father's cognomen, or nickname, is Bambalio, which means stutterer. Not the most prodigious pedigree for a woman who will grow to be ambitious as hell. We know pretty much nothing about how she grows up, her being a woman and all. We don't know how much education she gets either, though we can assume at least some, and we don't know how she spent her time. I like to envision her leading a baby gang around her local streets and hitting mean boys over the head with the amulet that all children wear around their necks for protection. Somewhere along the way, it seems like she developed a keen desire for power, to play an active, public role, and for people to know her name. The only way a fine Roman woman can do that is to hitch herself to some man's wagon and help drive it to greatness. Here's Dr. G. Because yeah. she clearly is interested in being active in politics. Like, she seems to have a political mindset. And in order to be active in politics, you've got to work through the men. And she sort of stands out as, like, this sort of lightning rod um, in that sort of model of Cornelia, of the Gracchi. Yeah. Um, of sort of being like, well, if it's through the men, so be it. Um, I'll do what I have to do. And so she doesn't truly appear on stage in this story until she takes her first husband. That man is a guy named Publius Clodius Polker, though we'll just call him Clodius. Ladies, your boy Clodius is here. Yeah, yeah, People say I like that drama. And you know what? It's true. My interests include dress-up parties, drinking games, pranks, causing trouble. I'm always down to clown, so holla at me. He is a patrician, mercurial, controversial, a bit of a wild child, and most certainly someone who likes to stir the pot. Before he meets Fulvia, he's already gotten into a bit of hot water over in Gaul, where he apparently incited a mutiny amongst the troops and, the rumors went, had an incestuous tryst with his general's wife. When he comes back to Rome, he finds he needs his own wife, preferably one with a little bit of cash money. Luckily, he meets Fulvia, who is the heiress of her family's fortune, and she needs a better man in her corner than she currently has, as apparently around this time she's hooking up with a guy named Quintus Curious. Sallust tells us that he's reckless, thoughtless, and apparently violent. He liked to promise her seas and mountains, and sometimes to threaten his mistress with the steel if she did not bow to his will. Quintus can go and choke on a dormouse. And though Clodius is a troublemaker, he is a well-connected patrician who will only elevate Fulvia in society. And I also have the feeling that, in his fiery nature and desire to shake things up, she sees a kindred spirit. They both seem to have a flair for drama. And in 62 BCE, the same year we think they marry, Clodius puts his on full and scandalous display. Here's where we circle back to Julius Caesar. Remember when he divorced his wife and then didn't marry the epically glorious Servilia? It all starts in the winter of 62, which brings with it the sacred festival of the Bona Dea, or the Good Goddess. She has a real name, but men aren't allowed to know it. Each December, the Vestal Virgins show up at a Roman citizen's house to perform the sacred rituals of the Bona Dea. That house belongs to the Pontifex Maximus, or chief priest, who just so happens to be Julius Caesar. Since it's a ladies-only festival, it's his wife Pompeia who serves as hostess. Given that Julius is fairly new to his role as Pontifex and has a lot he wants to accomplish, she's under a lot of pressure to make sure it all goes off without a hitch. We don't really know what goes on at this all-female festival, though I like to imagine it's much wine, some skinny-dipping, and trash-talking wayward husbands. There's a secret rite that involves the Vestal Virgins, who you'll remember it's a deadly crime to touch, which makes what Clodius does all the more scandalous. Pompeia was celebrating this festival, Plutarch writes later, and Clodius, who was still beardless and on this account thought to pass unnoticed, assumed the dress and implements of a lute girl and went to the house, looking like a young woman. He found the door open and was brought in safely by the maidservant there, who was in on the secret. But after she had run on ahead to tell Pompeia and some time had elapsed, Clodius had not the patience to wait where he had been left, and so 
As he was wandering about in the house and trying to avoid the lights, an attendant of Aurelia came upon him and asked him to play with her, as one woman would another. And when he refused, she dragged him forward and asked who he was and whence he came. He's caught and kicked out, but it turns out that his transgression is much more than a casual prank. He snuck into Caesar's house and spent time unchaperoned with many women, including the sacred Vestal Virgins. Who knows what happened behind those closed doors? But it's not just that. He interrupts the sacred rites the Vestals are meant to perform, and that means they have to repeat them. Remember that the Vestals are symbols of Rome's health and prosperity, so if something goes wrong with them and their rituals, it gets everyone hot and bothered. It's a big scandal, and it calls everyone involved under suspicion. Both Caesar, as the Pontifex Maximus, and Caesar's wife, who Clodius was supposedly there to seduce. The whole festival of the Bonadea is draped in a dark cloud of suspicion. This is one of the biggest kerfuffles ancient Rome has ever seen. And the ensuing trial is an interesting one because it highlights one of the questions that burns brightest in the Roman male imagination. Given that women are born with a certain moral weakness, what might they get up to if you gave them a barrel of wine and left them to their own devices? The potential answer makes ancient Roman men very anxious indeed. Clodius is taken to trial and accused of desecration for violating the ritual. The sentence carried for that crime is death. At first, Clodius tries to deny the whole thing, but there are just too many witnesses. Even Julius Caesar's mom and sister, who were there, get in on the act of testifying against Clodius. And even though Julius Caesar says he thinks his wife is innocent, he divorces her anyway for even this small whiff of impropriety. Why? Because he's an ambitious man still climbing the political ladder, is supposed to be the city's chief priest, and this whole thing is just really bad PR. He said as much in words that inspired the following catchphrase. Julius Caesar's wife must be above suspicion. Meanwhile, he's sleeping with Servilia and who knows who else. But okay, Julius, you throw your wife under the bus. In the end, Clodius gets off without much punishment, perhaps because he bribes the jury, which illustrates the fact that the Republic isn't running quite as smoothly as it once did, and an unfair double standard that will play out in these stories again and again. Women are punished for even the suggestion of naughty behavior, or just because their behavior makes the men around them look bad, while men like Clodius simply have to throw around some money and force to get their way. Anyway, the guy who gets up in court and runs the case against Clodius is Cicero, a statesman, philosopher, and perhaps the most convincing orator of his day. I, Cicero, am a master of words, and I am always swinging them in the name of justice. Ladies and gents alike have been known to swoon over my bulging <clears throat> oratory, so watch out, tyrants, because I'm coming for you. Hard. When he talks, people listen, and he is scathing in his attack of Clodius. He calls him a monster, effeminate, lusty, impious. Clodius will never forget the part he played in trying to disgrace him, and neither will Fulvia. That'll be important later. Clodius may be free to roam, but his fellow patricians have betrayed him and made him look bad. But there is a silver lining. By not bringing him to trial on an accusation of adultery, Caesar basically gives him a get-out-of-jail-free card. Because Caesar, too, is getting sick of Cicero's constant political roadblocking, and he wants Clodius on his side in Rome. The thing is that Clodius is no longer eligible to run for the Senate. But you know what they say, when one door closes, you open a window. And so it is that in 59 BCE, Fulvia's husband has the opportunity to close the door on the patricians and join up with the plebs. With Caesar's help as Pontifex Maximus, Clodius formally transfers out of the patrician clan into a plebeian family by having it adopt him. This is controversial and legally a little bit shady, but the move lets him enter back into politics as a tribune. And that's good because he is a member of the Populares, that political faction Cornelia's sons once helped get off the ground, and that represents the interests of the people. Clodius knows that the Senate has a lot of power, but there are other ways to get things done, and the people can have power too. There certainly are a lot of them, and in a city where there is currently no police force, a mob can be a mighty force for change. The man, or woman, who controls the mob, they might just be unstoppable. Mm -hmm. 
Fulvia and her husband make their mark among the insulae, the tall, cramped apartments that take up much of the city and that house most of Rome's people within them. They are better loved in the local taverna than in the gilded halls up on the Palatine, and it seems as if they're fine with that. Always, Fulvia is there beside her husband. Cicero tells us that she and Clodius are almost never seen apart. The key to their success in the streets is getting in with the collegium. Collegium are any organized groups with a shared purpose or function priesthoods, magistracies, tradesmen's guilds. In Rome's complicated game of who owes whom, a politician might become a patron of a particular collegia, knowing that they'll back him politically for it. That could mean canvassing on his behalf, swelling the numbers in his entourage to make him look that much more important. Or, as the Republic gets more corrupt, people who will intimidate others to hand over money or hand out bribes to grease the wheels. They might also start demonstrations on the streets or fight rival factions for dominance. Wait, are these trade groups or straight-up street gangs? Turns out, they're mostly the latter, and Clodius and Fulvia aren't afraid to use them. Clodius does this by putting in a monthly grain dole, making Rome's grain free for all, and chips away at any legal restrictions that might bar people from forming collegium. Clodius's secretary even goes out and organizes collegia himself, made up of Rome's grateful poor in Clodius's name. Remember that the urban poor make up a vast part of the city's population, and they're being trained to fight for Clodius and Fulvia if ever they're to ask. Even Rome's soldiers find it hard to fend off Clodius's thugs in the city's narrow alleys and twisting laneways, down amid the insulae they know so well. Rome is a dangerous city at night, with no streetlights, no police, and plenty of cutthroats. In this world, Clodius makes himself into a ganglord, and Fulvia is his mob boss lady. With a simple wave of her hand, she can have someone booed out of public games or beaten publicly in the streets. Her streets. She has powerful politicians cowering in their homes, afraid to ever come out again. By 60 BCE, the first triumvirate is up and running, with Pompey, Caesar, and Crassus backing each other's agendas no matter how much they might secretly want to push each other off a mountain. They help Caesar get elected consul in 59, and in turn he uses that lofty position to push through his frenemies' agendas. Then they help secure him a military posting in Gaul. But guys like Cicero are horrified by what he sees as their increasingly blatant corruption, and he isn't afraid to make some noise about it. So while Caesar is off in Gaul, he knows he needs an enforcer in Rome to look after his interests and make sure guys like Pompey don't get ideas about elbowing him out of the political frame. The one he chooses is the one and only Clodius, who is more than eager to stay in Caesar's good graces. But he isn't content to just send his thugs to crush skulls in the streets. In 58 BCE, he introduces a series of laws called the Leges Clodiae. Part of what they do is make it so anyone who has ever executed a Roman citizen without a trial has to be exiled. This law is popular with the plebs, of course, as it feels like sweet, sweet vengeance. But it also puts a target on the back of the guy who's been a thorn in Clodius and Caesar's sides for so long, Cicero. And that guy just doesn't know when to shut up. He goes on about how horrible and unfair it is, about how Rome is going to hell in a handbasket, and he has plenty of supporters who are horrified at the law as well. But Clodius and Fulvia are having none of it. To hell with diplomacy! Their gangs surround the Senate building, where Cicero and his friends are congregating, and chase them right out into the street. They then get a bill passed forbidding Cicero, fire, and water for 400 miles around Rome, which essentially means he can't come anywhere near it. They confiscate Cicero's country homes and his house on the Palatine, and then they burn them all to the ground. Damn, Fulvia! All of this violence in the street is making Pompey a little itchy. He was totally down with giving Clodius power in the beginning, when he and Caesar were still working together. But he's a big-deal general, damn it, and he's sick of being chased around by Clodius's thugs and hiding in his basement every time they come knocking. So he's like, You know what I need? A few calming beers and for Clodius and I to hug it out. Just kidding. I need an even bigger gang than he has. He gets a guy named Milo to create a thug posse comprised of ex-gladiators, and he and Clodius clash for years, fighting in the political sphere and in the streets alike in increasingly bloody fashion. Imagine being a woman out shopping at the market, just minding your business, and boom, guys with cudgels just beating on everybody. Rome's gang wars are getting out of control. 
And through it all, Fulvia is there, scheming, plotting, and intimidating, right at the heart of it all. You could say she's found her happy place, and it makes some Romans very uncomfortable. Fulvia had no interest in women's work, such as spinning or housekeeping, Plutarch writes later, and did not wish to preside over a husband who was not a public figure. Rather, she wanted to rule a ruler or command a general. And Fulvia's like, um, yeah, what's your point? This sounds almost like praise to warriors, but it's definitely meant as slander. In the sources we have, Fulvia is described as being a violation of everything that's sacred about a Roman matrona. Her behavior is, in their eyes, disturbingly masculine. Phileas Paterculus calls her a woman in body alone, to which I imagine Fulvia replying, Honey, I am all woman. You can take your tiny manhood and shove it right up your ass. If you've read or seen Shakespeare's Macbeth, it's almost as if Fulvia was the playwright's direct inspiration for Lady Macbeth. I think she would completely identify with her whole unsex me here speech, where Lady Macbeth proclaims that she wants to trade in her femininity for masculine cruelty. She knows her husband probably doesn't have what it takes to murder the king, and she knows she's going to need to stage manage him through it. Fulvia's the same, and she isn't afraid to get her hands dirty. Violence must be stirring to the loins as well, as through all this they have two healthy children, a boy and a girl. But in January 52 BCE, life as she knows it comes screeching to a halt. Milo and his gladiator gang kill Clodius in the middle of Rome's main street, the Appian Way. And this time, Fulvia isn't there with her husband. She's at home when someone brings his bloodied body to the door. Imagine stepping out onto the threshold to find your partner there, bloodied and beaten, knowing that everything about your life is about to change. But she isn't going to fade into the shadows and let grief swallow her. Instead, to get her vengeance, she's about to turn the drama up to 11. She props up Clodius's body, showing off his wounds to the ever-growing crowd, and gives a passionate speech that fuels the flames of their followers' outrage. We don't know what she says, but it must be pretty convincing, because the crowd is so incensed that they carry the body naked through the streets of Rome, collecting angry mourners as they go. They take it to the Forum, where they rip apart the furniture to make a pyre, light it up, and cremate his body, burning the architectural heart of the Senate to the ground. I can just see Fulvia now, standing with that match in her hand. <laughs> Let's burn this sh** down. And again, damn Fulvia. Here's Dr. Rad and Dr. G. She quite publicly shows her grief um, to try and sort of whip up, I think, a bit of public sympathy perhaps for Clodius, um, which is very much like what, you know, like Antony does for Caesar when Caesar gets assassinated. Maybe that's where he learned it from. Exactly. <laughs> she was a pioneer. Now Fulvia's not just the wife of a gang lord, she is the gang lord. She gives evidence in the ensuing trial against Milo, who is defended, of course, by Cicero, who has by this time wormed his way back into Rome. And it's one of those trials where lots of people are allowed in to watch, including Pompey's soldiers and Fulvia's gang members. Cicero tries not to be intimidated, but even he can't save Milo from Fulvia's passionate, well-placed testimony. It brings the jury to tears and helps nail Milo to the wall. It does work. Eventually, Milo is in fact banished um, for this for this crime. So this is you know this is a pretty big deal that she's uh, that she's involved in. From here on out, Cicero absolutely loathes Fulvia. She is everything he hates, and that's fine because she loathes him right back. I imagine Fulvia's sad about losing Clodius, but that doesn't mean she has to lose all they built together. And I get the feeling she isn't one to rest on her laurels and eat bonbons. So she marries again, as you do. She then moves on to a man called Curio, who doesn't seem to have been a particularly amazing politician until he gets married to Fulvia. Uh, we don't know whether those two things are connected or not, <laughs> but it could be that she gave him the sort of the drive that he needed <laughs> to, you know, to try and take on more, I suppose, and have more of a, a career path sort of set out in front of him. 
He abandons the aristocracy for the plebs, much like Clodius, and probably because of Fulvia. And suddenly, he's a much more pointed and noteworthy politician. But he doesn't last for long. Curio dies in North Africa fighting for Caesar in 49 BCE. This is the same year Caesar takes his troops across the river Rubicon to seize control of Italy, starting a civil war with his frenemy Pompey. Crassus, by this point, has been killed abroad while trying to wage war against the Parthians. Fun side note, he died by having gold poured directly down his throat. Well, that's gross and kind of lavish. And this is the same year Caesar's going to sail to Egypt, meet Cleopatra, and have a very public love affair. But what's happening with Fulvia in Rome during all this madness? It's time to get properly introduced to Fulvia's third and final husband, Mark Antony. I'll let him introduce himself. Sup, girl? It's General Marky Mark back in the game. Looking to have a good time because I've been killing it since 83. My motto, work hard, play hard, love hard. I ride my chariots fast, fight my bottles fierce, and chug wine straight from the bottle. I love all things Greek, hitting the gym in short tunics, playing practical jokes, and going to parties. It's a wasted night if I'm home before the sun rises, and I ain't wasted. Oh, and the ladies. I love the ladies. Or should I say, the ladies love me. If you think you can handle me, hit me up. A little summary of his life so far. Born in 83 BCE, he comes from a plebeian noble family. His dad was a praetor, but was defeated rather embarrassingly in battle. And his sons ended up bankrupt because of it. Later, his stepfather is put to death without a trial, rather scandalously, as part of something called the Catiline Conspiracy. I bring this up because Fulvia actually helped to get these conspirators caught in the first place, and also because our favorite orator, Cicero, is the guy who took them down, and that's something Mark Antony isn't going to forget about in a hurry. Anyway, none of that kept him from living large as a 20-something. He ran around town with both of Fulvia's first two husbands, earning a rep as Rome's number one frat boy, drinking and womanizing, running up debts with everyone in town. In 57 BCE, he ends up joining the army, and he actually proves himself pretty good at it. Eventually, he's posted in Gaul, where he proves himself so good a bruiser that Caesar takes notice, becoming a kind of mentor to Antony. He eventually returns to Rome, becomes a quaestor, and at some point in 53, he and Clodius have a falling out. Apparently, they get into a sword fight in a bookshop? That's what Cicero claims. Ah, Rome. So, by this point, Caesar's won the Civil War and is Rome's top dog, but he's got some sexy business to tend to over in Egypt. Meanwhile, he leaves Mark Antony in charge as Rome's wonderfully named Master of Horse, which is basically his deputy. But it isn't a well-defined position, and things in Rome in this period are wobbly at best. Mark's job is to try and keep order, and so he's allowed to command troops if he has to. But mostly, he's acting like a kid in a candy store, taking power by the fistful. He's doing a lot of controversial things, riding around on a chariot, wearing purple cloaks, showing up in the Senate in full armor, and parading around with a bunch of lictors like a pompous asshat. By the time he and Fulvia are getting reacquainted, Antony is a confirmed rake, drinking lavishly and sleeping with a whole lot of ladies, including a very public affair with a popular actress. Much scandal. But he's Caesar's man, and a man on the rise, full of ambition and passion, just Fulvia's type. Sometime in 46 BCE, we think, he and Fulvia get married. Though Cicero suggests that Fulvia and Mark were secretly sleeping together long before. Maybe all the way back to her first husband's trial over the Bonadea. Given that Mark Antony was tight bros with both of her husbands, they'd definitely have known each other and run in the same circles. Cicero, who we have to admit is probably a dubious source for this, describes how Mark Antony slipped away from his barracks one night to deliver a wooing letter to Fulvia, full of how much he loves her and promising he won't two-time her with that hot actress anymore. You know, probably. Oh, Mark. Cicero, who we'd best remember is not a Fulvia fan, writes that Mark is only marrying her for her money. But there's a lot in the match for both of them. Fulvia comes with gangs at her command, influence over the people, money in her stola, a cunning mind, and with a healthy dose of ruthless ambition. And by all accounts, Mark Antony is like, Damn, girl! 
so much so that he just can't seem to deny her anything. As Plutarch will later say, while writing about the epic affair he'll soon be having with the Queen of Egypt. Cleopatra ought to have paid Fulvia tuition for schooling Antony to obey a woman. So docile and trained to obey a woman's commands was he when she took him on. For her part, I can see what she likes about Antony. He's a powerful figure, a war hero, and a close friend of Caesar's. He's ambitious and passionate, a risk-taker. And that's kind of her thing. Sure, he's brash, and he might not be great at self-control, but he is smart, sometimes. And Fulvia has stage-managed a man before. She's more than ready to do it again. Though it's the third marriage for both of them, it's clear from the stories that there's plenty of emotion in the union. Plutarch tells us about a fun little joke Mark plays on his wife when he rides out to meet Caesar, who's returning from battle. He disguises himself as a messenger to bring Fulvia a note that's supposed to be from him. When she asks if he's alive, the messenger doesn't reply, then stands there and waits for her reaction. Before long, he uncovers his head and throws his arms about her, apparently pleased by her tears and her overall show of devotion. Tricking your wife into thinking you're dead just to see if she loves you. Good one. One thing this story does show us, it's that Fulvia has a softer side. She does care very much for her husband, enough that she would openly show worry and upset over his fate in front of a delivery boy. That's a very different picture than the one we usually get of cruel, take-no-prisoners Fulvia. One thing that is, that could definitely be said about her is that whoever she's married to at the time, she's very loyal and dedicated to their cause. So no matter what else is going on, she's looking out for them. While Antony is great at drinking and fighting, he's not always great at keeping the peace. By the end of his time as Master of Horse, pretty much everyone's mad at him. In this way, Fulvia proves her worth early. There's a major debt crisis in Rome. No one can pay their bills, and so a tribune of the people named Dolabella wants to put in some big reforms of debt forgiveness. Antony opposes this, partially because Caesar won't like it, and also because Dolabella once slept with Antony's second wife. Well, that's petty. Dolabella takes a mob to the Forum to make sure his reforms are passed. Apparently, he missed the memo on who exactly Mark is married to. Fulvia whips up her own gang to oppose Dolabella, and though 800 people are killed in the ensuing madness, Antony wins the day. No way could he have done it without his number one gangsta lady. When Caesar comes back from all his conquering abroad, he's not best pleased with the way Mark Antony dealt with things in his absence. He falls out of favor and spends some time unemployed, probably sulking around his house and driving Fulvia crazy. But eventually, by the fateful 44 BCE, he and Caesar are back to being besties. Caesar even makes him the equivalent of an ancient Roman friendship bracelet by promising they'll be joint consuls together. He converts Mark and his immediate family to a patrician family, elevating them in the eyes of everybody. We can only imagine that Fulvia's been coaching and pushing him all this time, and that she's rubbing her hands together over this new rise in favor. At age 39, and at last, her husband is about to come into his own. But then Caesar is killed by Servilius' son and his conspirators, and his death plunges Rome into absolute chaos. At first, Mark and Fulvia probably hide in their house. Mark was Julius's right-hand man, so what's to stop the conspirators from killing him as well? But that doesn't happen. Instead, people start picking sides. Some support Caesar's assassins, like Cicero, who's going to use his silver tongue to try and win the people's approval for Brutus. But others, like Mark Antony, want Caesar's killers brought to justice. Meanwhile, public opinion on the whole thing is changing with every stiff breeze. It is really an awkward time to be a politician. Yeah, it is. It's it's really hard to tell her story because there's so much there's so many political things um, basically going on, um, and she but she does seem to have been in, you know involved in, in quite a bit of it. Fulvia and her husband know that whoever ends up controlling that breeze has a real chance to define everything that's about to happen. And who's the real strategist in this particular marriage? As the only remaining consul, Mark Antony has more power in Rome than anyone in this moment. And he uses some of it, at first, to try and stave off government shutdown and civil war. As head of state, he contacts a guy named Lepidus, who has command of a lot of Caesar's troops, and makes sure they're still playing on the same side. Then he kidnaps Caesar's papers and his treasury. 
He convenes a meeting of the Senate and says that, hey, maybe they should give the conspirators amnesty. He even sends his and Fulvia's infant son to the conspirators' camp to try and show good faith, which seems pretty bold. But he quickly discovers that if he wants to swing the public in Caesar's, and thus his, favor, he's going to have to make them into the villains of this particular story. So he decides to stage Caesar's funeral with the most possible drama. As Appian has it, He stripped the clothes from Caesar's body, raised them on a pole, and waved them about, rent as they were by stabs and befouled by the dictator's blood. He even makes a wax effigy of Caesar, complete with stab wounds, and rotates it using some special pulleys to make sure that those sitting in the nosebleeds can see. Well, that's extra. He gives an emotional eulogy meant to stir up the crowd, which it does, and as Appian says, At this, the people, like a chorus, joined him in the most sorrowful lamentation, and after this expression of emotion, were again filled with anger. Wait, what? This is ripped straight out of the How to Start a Riot in Three Steps playbook. Step 1. Display the naked, wounded body. Step 2. Make a fiery speech. Step 3. Build a pyre out of chairs and burn down a building. Why does this sound so familiar? We don't have any evidence that she helped him plan this event, but I mean, come on now. As a result, Mark Antony ends up leader of the cause to punish the assassins, which means he's straight up running things in the wake of Caesar's death. Well, sort of. Here's the rub. In Caesar's will, he leaves very little to Mark Antony. The person he leaves most of his wealth to is, in fact, his grandnephew, a sickly teenager named Gaius Octavian. The will claims that Caesar is posthumously adopting Octavian as his son. It isn't uncommon in Rome to adopt a grown person into your family, legally speaking, but it's pretty unusual for it to happen after someone's dead. And remember that Julius has no legitimate sons with any of his wives. Only that one son with Cleopatra, who he most definitely does not mention in his will. This makes Octavian Julian's successor in pretty much every way that matters, and Octavian isn't about to let Mark Antony reign on that parade. We'll spend a lot of time with Octavian in future episodes, and so we'll bask in his particular glory more properly then. For now, let's just say that Antony is not excited to hand his old friend's legacy over to this pimpled, pompous nobody. And when Octavian rides into town, he is not thrilled to have Mark Antony holding Caesar's papers and his inheritance hostage. As consul, Antony's essentially made himself the unofficial executor of Caesar's will, passing laws because he says, it's what Caesar wanted. Of course, he's not actually showing anybody what's in Caesar's papers, so, you know, they all just have to take his word for it. One person besides Octavian who is not taking his word for it is our favorite thorny statesman, Cicero. He thinks Mark Antony's just making it all up as he goes along, and only claiming he's spouting Caesar's intentions. So when Octavian gets to Rome, he decides it's time to do some speech-making. Remember that Cornelia's sons once used her name to make a point, although they were making a point about how bomb she was. But Cicero's Philippics, a series of 14 speeches delivered between September 44 and April of 43, get pretty nasty. Cicero is definitely an enemy, a, po a, po a political enemy of Antony. And he is he writes some very well-known speeches that are that are against Antony. For this reason, Fulvia gets dragged into his speeches as well and becomes like a, a, a mode of attack as well. He pumps up Octavian's reputation, calling him the second coming of Caesar, but, you know, better. He also tries to take down Antony by throwing the book at Fulvia, calling her greedy, promiscuous, a husband killer, and horrors unwomanly. He says that she sold part of Rome, and perhaps her body as well, to get ahead. Ah, ancient slut-shaming. He tells a story about Mark Antony and Fulvia riding out to punish a legion for going against him through an act called decimation. This is a disciplinary action for when soldiers misbehave that involves them drawing straws, and every tenth man who draws a short straw is beaten to death by his fellows. Yikes! Cicero says that Antony does this horrible thing not on his own, but... In the lap of his wife, who was not only most avaricious, but also most cruel. Not only is he shaming Antony for following his wife in all things, but he's blaming all his bad decisions on Fulvia. Cicero is not pulling punches. And, and this is not particularly uncommon in Roman politics, particularly by the late Republic. It's quite common to attack 
a man by attacking the female relatives in his life. So we do always need to bear in mind with people like Fulvia that she may be being overly criticized and demonized because of her connections to particular men. But having said that, there probably is a kernel of truth to what they're saying. And I think Fulvia must have been politically prominent enough to merit this kind of attention. Yeah, so no political invective can really be successful unless there's a plausibility about the accusations being made. We can only really imagine how much this must have enraged Fulvia. But she doesn't hide. She does what she does best and takes to the streets, canvassing on her husband's behalf as Cicero tries to get the Senate to make him an enemy of the state. Of course they do, and Fulvia and her children have to take shelter. The winds of power aren't blowing her way. Antony and Octavian quickly become rivals. Caesar's legions start picking sides, and skirmishes happen. But eventually they realize that they have a better chance at grasping power, at least for now, if they join forces. And so they form an alliance called the Second Triumvirate. Yes, because the first one turned out super well. Really where we see Fulvia being active is during this period known as the the Second Triumvirate. And this is where we see Octavian, Antony, and a man called Lepidus coming together and kind of carving up the Roman Empire between the three of them and sort of administering to the politics of the time between the three of them. But of course, it's not all smooth sailing. Because, secretly, they probably all want it for themselves. (laughs) Uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Secretly. Or maybe not. Regardless, to seal the deal, Octavian marries Fulvia's daughter from her first marriage, Clodia. We don't know how Clodia feels about any of it, or Fulvia for that matter. But in ancient Rome, this kind of dynasty building is what daughters are great for. And so they go on in an uneasy peace. In the meantime, they start doing something that hasn't been done since back when Sulla made himself Rome's first dictator. Basically, when the triumvirate is sort of coming together, one of the first things that they do is there's this period called the prescriptions. And this is where they nominate people who are essentially their political enemies and make them... Put them on a list and start killing them off one by one. Yeah, it's a pretty horrible period. This is a way to eliminate the people who they feel have wronged them, or might still wrong them, and drum up some money for their war against the conspirators. A guy can't get mad when you confiscate his estate if he's not around to complain about it, right? In short, this is an ugly, frightful time to be a patrician. Heads are rolling in a serious way. As Cassius Dio tells us, The whole city was filled with corpses. Many were killed in their houses. Many even in the streets and here and there, in the fora and around the temples. The heads of the victims were once more set upon the rostra and their heads and bodies either allowed to lie where they were, to be devoured by dogs and birds, or else cast into the river. Fulvia is apparently very up and involved with the whole prescription process. You do not want to get on her bad side. Because while she may be a woman, right now she's one of the most influential people in Rome. Cassius Dio tells us that she uses the prescriptions not to get rid of threats, but settle scores. There's a story about a guy named Rufus, who owns a nice house Fulvia wants to buy. He won't sell it, and when people start dying, Fulvia makes it clear he'd best reconsider. Fearing for his life, he tries to give it to her for free, but Fulvia's already got her quill out, and she's singing a little song. Oh, I'm making a list, I'm checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty or nice, Fulvia is coming to town. Rufus's severed head is brought over to Mark Antony while he's eating dinner, and while everyone else turns away, Valerius Maximus tells us, Antony ordered that it be brought nearer. After staring at it for an uncomfortable number of seconds, he says, Wait, wait, wait. New new box. Who dis? I don't know this guy. What? He must be one of my wife's. Box it up. Send it to her, man. Antony is like, what is this? I have no idea what's going on. And apparently sends it on to Fulvia, who then impales it on a hat, on a, like, basically impales it outside of his house instead of on the rostra, which is where you'd normally display the <laughs> decapitated head of someone who was. You can't say she's not an innovator. No. no. <laughs> Because ancient Rome is all about complicated relationships, this whole thing gets messy quickly. 
It's not like Mark Antony can just choose one person who he feels plotted against him and put him on the kill list. He has to talk it over with the other two triumvirs, who might be friends with that person, and make him offer up someone else in exchange for getting him offed. In consequence of the dealings they had had with one another, they kept a sort of reckoning of the items of friend and enemy, says Cassius Dio, and no one of their number could take vengeance on one of his own enemies if he was a friend of one of the other two without giving up some friend in return. And you know who is most certainly not a friend of Mark Antony or Fulvia's? That guy, Cicero. But he is a friend of Octavian's, so to get him on the list, Antony and Lepidus have to offer up family members for prescription. They hate him so much that they do it, and Cicero's suddenly running for Rome for his life. Unfortunately for him, he doesn't run fast enough. And I'm sure that Fulvia helps seal his fate. But that's not all. Cicero, not surprisingly after these horrible speeches, ends up on the prescription list. And in 43 BCE, he is killed. And there's this horrible story that has to do with Fulvia and Cicero that apparently his head was delivered to her to inspect. And she apparently... He pulls out his tongue, that poisonous tongue that spoke so many horrible things about her and Antony, and drives her hairpins through it. That'll teach him. Exactly. <laughs> this is the thing Fulvia's most famous for, stabbing a dead man with a hairpin. Girl, that's cold. Oh, sorry, not sorry. Did this happen, or was it invented to try and show how brutal and horrible Fulvia was? Hard to say. But the fact that anyone would believe her capable of such a hardcore move speaks volumes about what men of her time seem to think about her. Yeah, I mean, this does seem part of the critique of her is that um, she is interested in the violence. Um, She's happy to participate in it. She's willing to use that violence that's happening around her as a vehicle for revenge. And in every sense, from a Roman political um, perspective, this means that she's very unwomanly. Um, She's not embodying any of the qualities that we expect in a Matrona. And her femininity is really being called into question. After that bloody little interlude, in 42, the second triumvirate sails off to pursue and defeat Cassius and Brutus at Philippi. But Dio tells us that it's actually Fulvia who's running the show. This involves getting the Senate to grant her brother-in-law, Lucius, a triumph, using her money to manipulate politics and, sad to say, being a pretty bad feminist. You'll remember from one of our When in Rome episodes that around this time a woman named Hortensia stands up at the rostra and speaks out against a tax being imposed on 1,400 of the wealthy women of Rome. That tax is meant to fund the civil war against the conspirators, so Mark Antony most certainly wants it to go through. Apparently, Hortensia goes to Fulvia's house, hoping to convince her to persuade Antony to throw it out the window. Instead, she turns her and her friends away. Fulvia's never heard about sisters before misters. It's really interesting as well that you bring up Hortensia because she's kind of like the flip side to the Fulvia representation. Because Hortensia as well is coming from a noble background. Um, She's taking a physical um, public role in expressing her displeasure about the way things are happening in Rome. Yeah, it's basically like this new tax, which she's not happy about. But she's accruing a lot of respect for the way that she goes about that. Yes. Um, Whereas Fulvia, you get the sense from all the source material, is that she's not garnering a lot of respect. Meanwhile, the Triumvirs proclaim themselves Rome's leaders and its champions. Rather than fight over who is going to run what, the three of them carve up the Republic into spheres they'll each govern. Octavian gets the West... Antony gets the East, and Lepidus gets... Wait, what does Lepidus get? Some of Africa, I think, but not the good parts. And so Fulvia's husband trots off to take a tour of his region, where he's hailed as a hero and treated like his favorite god, Dionysus. He lives a little bit like Dionysus too, partying and living it up. All over the East, people roll out the purple carpet for him, hoping to stay in Mark Antony's good graces. It's on this epic adventure cruise that he'll meet and begin a passionate, doomed affair with Cleopatra. And this must have, this just lays like another level of complexity to what is going on in an already, already complicated, complicated situation. Yeah. 
But meanwhile, back in Rome, someone needs to make sure his supporters can't be turned against him. Someone has to watch out for his interests and make sure Octavian doesn't take all the glory. And Fulvia's just the gal for the job. Octavian's got his hands full in Rome at the moment, and things have gotten off to a rather rocky start. But there just isn't enough good land to go around, and Octavian better hop to it before those unhappy veterans decide to break out their spears. So he decides he's going to have to displace some people, and those people kicked off their lands are distinctly unhappy. This is a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't situation, and Octavian is making enemies in Rome. But he's also winning over a lot of soldiers with his efforts, and that's bad for Fulvia's husband because he's not around to keep his men from defecting. So Canny, all about that offense, Fulvia, does what she can to rectify the situation. Fulvia seems to be crucial um, in watching out for Antony. So there's definitely um, there's a period where Antony goes through a military defeat at Mutina, and people start moving against Antony to try and make him a public enemy. But Fulvia um, basically stands against them. She gets together with Antony's mother and the two of them go around to senators' houses all night to try and basically win people over to Antony's cause. And then the next day, they don mourning clothes, which uh, would be similar in colour to what we would associate with mourning these days, like dark clothing, um, and starts, you know, sort of publicly, you know, lamenting what, what is happening um, and, and tries to, you know, jump and talk to senators as they're making their way to the Senate House that particular day. Um, and so, and, and because of, partially because of her efforts, this, this move against Antony is blocked, which is pretty impressive. But more must be done. Fulvia decides it's time to suit up. Her biggest year really comes in 41 BCE, and this is when the consuls are Mark Antony's brother, Lucius, and a man named Suilius Is- um, Isacarius, I think, um, is how you pronounce it. But the sources say, you know, it's like a, you know, bit of a witty aside, or their attempt to be witty anyway, as men, that really it's Lucius, Antonius, and Fulvia who are the consuls, because she's calling all the shots. <laughs> <laughs> and so apparently um, they, they, they sort of tell us that everything that's happening in terms of the public business is going through her approval and that Lucius Antonius is just acting as her, you know, her puppet. <laughs> she and Antony's brother Lucius, one of Rome's consuls, raise eight legions in Antony's name. Setting up her headquarters in Praeneste, 20 miles east of Rome, she corresponds with the Senate, sends orders to checkpoints, harangues some troops. Reportedly, she even wears a sword around. Whether or not she's actually poking that sword of hers, the fact that she's so involved and acting almost as a commander is pretty wild for ancient Rome. She isn't leading this army per se, but I mean, kind of. Fulvia is not actually there in person herself, but she tries to collect up reinforcements to send them to Antonius so that he can withstand Octavian. So now she's on the battlefield. Yeah. Dio describes Fulvia as the sole commander during the occupation of Praeneste. Appian says that when she goes to Gaul, she rallies generals and secures reinforcements. Get it, Fulvia! How involved is Antony in any of this? We don't really know. He could have asked Fulvia to do this for him, or she could have been taking the initiative, which doesn't exactly seem out of character. But we do know that at some point in here, Antony has some coins commissioned. They feature Fulvia, pictured as the goddess Victoria, and they're the earliest known coins bearing the image of a living Roman woman. Yes, honey! Soon, actual fighting is going to break out. The ancient sources, of course, claim that Fulvia instigates the whole Perusine War because she's jealous of her husband's extramarital dalliances. Because of course women only do things because they're driven wild by their emotions. But she could also be doing it out of loyalty to her wayfaring husband, and because she knows that if she doesn't, her family will lose their grip on power, perhaps forever. She knows that Octavian will make sure of it. Speak of the devil, Octavian decides to break his engagement with her daughter Clodia and sends her back, saying he never touched her. That's cute. He's also credited with writing the following little poem, which comes from the satirist Marshall, so take this with a grain of salt. Because Antony f***s Glafira, Fulvia fixed this punishment for me that I should f*** her too. Either f*** me or we fight, she says. 
What about my prick being dearer to me than life itself? Let the charge sound. This poem turns Fulvia into an aggressive, masculine figure. If Octavian did write it, it goes to show that men in management positions have always been threatened by ambitious women. In that, if nothing else, we can identify with Fulvia's plight. Lucius's forces skirmish with Octavian's in what's now called the Perusine War, driving him out of Rome for a time. Eventually, Lucius gets surrounded at the Etruscan city of Perusia. We've found evidence there of lead sling bullets, also referred to as glandes, a common weapon used in ancient Roman warfare. They were often inscribed with words like the name of the bullet's maker, and sometimes with racy insults. If the Romans are anything, it's unafraid to be crude. These show that even the common soldier knows who the big players are in this conflict, and one of them is our girl Fulvia. Some say, Salve Octavi Philas. Octavian performs fellatio. Others say, Fulvia Landicompito. I seek Fulvia's clitoris. This is, in fact, one of the earliest surviving uses of the Latin word Landica, or clitoris. A fact that I think would make Fulvia quite proud. Lucius and Fulvia both hope that Antony's friends will rally around them, but that doesn't happen. Lucius is driven out, and Fulvia has to flee with their children. She travels to Brundisium, then rides a warship to Athens, where she finally meets up with her husband. Apparently, he's pretty upset about the whole starting a war in my name thing. We don't know what argument they have, but it seems the fight and her defeat take the wind out of Fulvia's sails. She dies in Greece of some unknown illness. Does she die of a broken heart, as some sources claim? Is she poisoned to ensure she never interferes in Roman politics again? Or is the ancient world a place where people die of illness all the time? No matter which way it went, it's an unfortunate end for Fulvia. And in the end, her husband washes his hands of her, telling Octavian that Fulvia and Lucius acted completely on their own. Octavian and Antony basically place all the blame for what had happened between them on her, and they have a reconciliation. She goes down in ancient history as Rome's number one nasty woman, the epitome of everything a woman isn't supposed to be. But now, though we have to acknowledge some of her more ruthless actions, we can appreciate her for what she was. Extremely complicated and amazingly unconventional. We can admire her ingenuity, her drive, and her absolute badassery. In a world that didn't like or trust women in power, Fulvia was just as much a gangster as her famous husband's. Maybe even more so. She certainly was a total badass, and she is a bit of a prototype, I suppose, in some ways, for the women that will come in the Julia-Claudian dynasty and in the empire, for a woman who's willing to step into the political sphere and even even slightly transgress in a military capacity. Yeah, I think uh, in, in this sense, Fulvia sort of is like a landmark figure, because as much as like she finds herself perhaps limited by her gender, it's kind of like she just keeps powering on. As the Roman Republic careened toward empire, there were plenty of big male egos and their big personalities. But their lives and stories wouldn't have been the same without the strong, crafty, resilient women who loved and supported them. With so little left to us, we can only really imagine what it was like to be Cornelia, Servilia, and Fulvia, to live during such tumultuous times. But it's easy to see that they left their mark on the ancient Roman political landscape, paving a way for the ladies to come. Soon, we'll be diving headlong into the early days of the Empire, meeting the Imperial women who become its influential first wives, mothers, and daughters. Livia, Octavia, Antonia, the Julias, the Agrippinas. All right. But first, at last, we're going to hop back over to Egypt and spend some time with the indomitable Cleopatra. Her story runs parallel to the events we've just covered, and I can't wait to explore them all through her eyes. Until next time. Thanks for listening. 
If you like the show, share it with some friends, leave a review, or consider becoming a patron for exclusive bonus episodes, gifts, interviews, and more. You can also support the show and get yourself some lovely artwork while you're at it by purchasing a lady-centric map, timeline, art print, or greeting card over at my Etsy merchandise shop. For a transcript of this episode, a list of my research sources, lots of images, and more, check out my website at theexploresspodcast.com. Come find me on Instagram and Facebook at The Explores Podcast and Twitter at The Explores Pod. The music you've been enjoying comes courtesy of Michael Levy, whose lyre music really helps me bring the ancient world to life. You'll find links to his work in the show notes. A special thanks to the partial historians for helping me tell Fulvia's story. And to my lovely intern, Stephanie Foley, for helping get this episode together. Thanks, too, to Mr. Explores for my logo and theme music, and the following legends for their vocal stylings. Ray Reynolds, who plays a feisty Fulvia. Andrew Yurgold, who brought Mark Antony to life. Sean, from Stories of Your and Yours, as Cicero. Avery Downing, as Plutarch. Paul Gablonski. Brendan Cousins. And, of course, John Armstrong. Yeah, girl. Oh, I'm into it. Oh, let's go. Oh, that, that one right there. Let's go. Let's go.